This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. If a person was forced to choose what the greatest ghost story in Wisconsin might be, it would almost undoubtedly be the legend of Summerwind. This haunted mansion has spawned more strange tales and stories than any other location in the state. What dark secrets remain hidden in the ruins of this once grand estate? Were the stories of ghostly encounters and messages from beyond really true, or were they part of an elaborate publicity hoax? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. This is the anniversary month of Weird Darkness. It began in October of 2015, and so to celebrate our anniversary, I'm using this opportunity to raise funds for depression and suicide prevention. We all know somebody who suffers or has thought about or even tried to commit suicide. But I want to bring hope to these people, and I need your help to do it. A donation of any amount can help us reach our goal of $2,000. We're currently, at the moment I'm recording this episode, at $1,230. So we still have a little ways to go to reach the $2,000 goal, but I know we can do it before the end of the month. All money collected is going to go directly towards treatment and research for those who are in crisis. So take a look at the many who've already given, read their testimonies, and read the latest update from me, which I posted just yesterday, and of course, make a donation. Go to WeirdDarkness.com and click on Battle the Darkness, or you can click the link in the show notes. And if you'd like to make this a birthday present for me, my birthday is the day after Halloween, so you can consider this a birthday gift. You won't have to buy me anything else. WeirdDarkness.com, click on Battle the Darkness, or again, you can click the link in the show notes. And we are still planning for our very first ever Weird Darkness live scream. It's taking place on Halloween, October 31st, live on YouTube. I'll be narrating the stories as usual, I'll be doing it in real time, on camera, and uh, the camera is actually going to be between me and the sidewalk, which means as trick-or-treaters come to our door here at Marlar Manor, well, you're going to see them pass by. So they'll actually be interrupting me quite a bit, which I, I thought would actually be kind of fun. So be sure to subscribe to my channel if you want to follow it live. Go to youtube.com slash Marlar House. 
That's youtube.com slash MarlarHouse. I'll probably take the audio and make a podcast out of it too, if it turns out alright, but it's going to lose a lot of effect when I'm interacting with people that are passing by and telling them about their costumes and everything, so it might be best to go ahead and, and go for the YouTube version. So again, that's youtube.com slash MarlarHouse, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. The Weird Darkness live scream, it begins, again, October 31st, Halloween, 5 p.m. Central Time, that's 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific, and I do hope that you'll join me. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. Was summer wind in Wisconsin really haunted? No one knows, and if they do, they're not saying. And today, only the foundations, the stone chimney, and perhaps the ghosts remain of this Wisconsin mansion. A young woman discovers that it's possible to live a lonely life, yet still not be alone. Is it possible that during the years of World War I, Agnes Whiteland, while peering off her balcony, saw a group of time travelers? Tichaba proved to be a fantastic orator as she walked her way out of slavery using the fear and mass hysteria of witchcraft that paralyzed the people of Salem. The discovery of a ten-year-old's body at an ancient Roman site in Italy suggests that his family, friends, and neighbors thought he was a vampire and took measures to make sure he wouldn't return from the grave. And authorities placed Gil Perez in jail as a deserter and for the possibility that he may have been in the service of Satan. In Gil's defense, though, he said he simply teleported somewhere else. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Located on the shores of West Bay Lake in the far northeast regions of Wisconsin, are the ruins of a once grand mansion that was called Summerwind. The house is long gone now, but the memories remain, as do the stories and legends of the inexplicable events that once took place there. Summerwind is perhaps Wisconsin's most haunted house, or at least it was, before fire and the elements of nature destroyed it. Regardless, even the ravages of time cannot destroy the haunted history of the house. The mansion was built in 1916 by Robert P. Lamont as a summer home for he and his family. Nestled on the shores of the lake, the house caught the cool breezes of northern Wisconsin and provided a comfortable place for Lamont to escape the pressures of everyday life in Washington, D.C., as he would later go on to serve as the Secretary of Commerce under President Herbert Hoover. But life was not always sublime at Summerwind during the years of the Lamont family. For those who claim that the ghost stories of the house were created in later years, they forget the original tale of Robert Lamont's encounter with the spirit. Legends of the house say that Lamont actually fired a pistol at a ghost that he believed was an intruder. The bullet holes in the basement door from the kitchen remained for years. Upon the death of Robert Lamont, 
the house was sold. And sold again. It seemed that nothing out of the ordinary really happened there, save for Lamont's one encounter with that phantom intruder. Until the 1970s, it was in this period that the family living in the house was nearly destroyed, supposedly by ghosts. Arnold Henshaw, his wife Ginger, and their six children moved into Summerwind in the early part of the 1970s. They would only reside in the house for six months, but it would be an eventful period of time. From the day that they moved in, they knew strange things were going on in the house. It had been vacant for some time, but it had apparently been occupied by otherworldly visitors. The Henshaws and their children immediately started to report vague shapes and shadows flickering down the hallways. They also claimed to hear mumbled voices in darkened, empty rooms. When they would walk inside, the sounds would quickly stop. Most alarming was the ghost of the woman who was often seen floating back and forth just past some French doors that led off from the dining room. The family wondered if they were simply imagining things, but continued events convinced them otherwise. Appliances, a hot water heater, and a water pump would mysteriously break down and then repair themselves before a serviceman could be called. Windows and doors that were closed would reopen on their own. One particular window, which proved especially stubborn, would raise and lower itself at all hours. Out of desperation, Arnold drove a heavy nail through the window casing, and it finally stayed closed. On one occasion, Arnold walked out to his car to go to work, and the vehicle suddenly burst into flames. No one was near it, and it's unknown whether the source of the fire was supernatural in origin or not, but regardless, no cause was ever found for it. Despite the strange activity, the Hinshaws wanted to make the best of the historic house, so they decided to hire some men to make a few renovations. It was most common for the workers to not show up for work, usually claiming illness, although a few of them simply told her that they refused to work on Summerwind Mansion, which was reputed to be haunted. That was when the Hinshaws gave up and decided to try and do all the work themselves. One day they began painting a closet in one of the bedrooms. A large shoe drawer was installed in the closet's back wall, and Arnold pulled it out so that he could paint around the edges of the frame. When he did, he noticed that there seemed to be a large, dark space behind the drawer. Ginger brought him a flashlight, and he wedged himself into the narrow opening as far as his shoulders. He looked around with the flashlight and then suddenly jumped back, scrambling away from the opening. He was both frightened and disgusted. There was some sort of corpse jammed into the secret compartment. Believing that an animal had crawled in there and died many years ago, Arnold tried to squeeze back in for a closer look. He couldn't make out much of anything, so when the children came home from school, he recruited his daughter Mary to get a better look. Mary took the flashlight and crawled inside. Moments later, she let out a scream. It was a human corpse. She uncovered a skull still bearing dirty black hair, a brown arm, and a portion of a leg. Why the Hinshaws never contacted the authorities about this body is unknown. Was the story concocted later 
to fit into the tales of haunted summer wind? Or was their reasoning the truth, that the body had been the result of a crime that took place many years ago, far too long for the police to do anything about it now? Had they been thinking things through, they might have realized that this body might have been the cause of much of the supernatural activity in the house. Removing it might have laid the ghost to rest, so to speak. Regardless, they left the corpse where they found it, but it will figure into our story once again. Shortly after the discovery of the body in the hidden compartment, things began to take a turn for the worse at Summerwind. Arnold began staying up very late at night and playing a Hammond organ that the couple had purchased before moving into the house. He had always enjoyed playing the organ, using it as a form of relaxation, but his playing now was different. His playing became a frenzied mixture of melodies that seemed to make no sense and grew louder as the night wore on. Ginger pleaded with him to stop, but Arnold claimed the demons in his head demanded that he play. He often crashed the keys on the organ until dawn, frightening his wife and children so badly that they often huddled together in one bedroom, crying and cowering in fear. Arnold had a complete mental breakdown, and at the same time, Ginger attempted suicide. Were the stories of strange events at Summerwind merely the result of two disturbed minds? It might seem so, but what about the children? they also reported the ghostly encounters. Were they simply influenced by their parents' questionable sanity? Or were the stories real? The family's connection with the house would continue for years to come. While Arnold was sent away for treatment, Ginger and the children moved to Granton, Wisconsin to live with Ginger's parents. Ginger and Arnold would eventually be divorced when it looked as though Arnold's hopes for recovery were failing. Ginger later recovered her health, away from Summerwind at last, and she married a man named George Olson. Things seemed to be going quite well for her in her new peaceful life until a few years later when her father announced that he was going to buy Summerwind. Raymond Bober was a popcorn vendor and businessman who, with his wife Marie, planned to turn the old mansion into a restaurant and inn. He believed the house would attract many guests to the scenic location on the lake. They had no idea what had happened to their daughter in the house. Ginger was horrified at her parents' decision. She had never given them all the details about what had happened during the six months that she lived in the house, and she refused to do so now. What she did do was to beg them not to buy Summerwind. Bober's mind, however, was made up. He announced that he realized the house was haunted, but that would not deter him. He claimed that he had spent some time at the house and knew the identity of the ghost that was haunting the place. According to Bober, the ghost was a man named Jonathan Carver, an 18th-century British explorer who was haunting the house and searching for an old deed that had been given to him by the Sioux Indians. In the document, he supposedly had the rights to the northern third of Wisconsin. The deed had supposedly been placed in a box and sealed into the foundation of Summerwind. Bober claimed that Carver had asked his help to find it. Bober wrote a book about his experiences at Summerwind and his communications with Carver through dreams, trances, and a Ouija board. 
The book was published in 1979 under the name of Wolfgang von Bober and was called The Carver Effect. It is currently out of print and very hard to find. Shortly after Bober bought the house, he, his son Carl, Ginger, and her new husband George spent a day exploring and looking over the house. The group had wandered through the place, and as they were leaving the second floor, George spotted the closet where the secret compartment was hidden. He began pulling out the drawers and looking behind them, although Ginger begged for him to stop. George was confused. He had simply been curious as to what might be in the drawers. Up until then, Ginger had never told anyone about finding the body behind the closet. Sitting in the kitchen later, she would tell them everything. After hearing the story, the men rushed back upstairs and returned to the closet. Ginger's brother, Carl, climbed into the space with a light and looked around. In a few moments, he climbed back out. It was empty. Bober and George also inspected the small space and found nothing. Where had the corpse gone? Had it been removed, either by natural or supernatural forces? Or, most importantly, had it ever really been there at all? Toward the end of that summer, Carl traveled alone to the old house. He had gone to get a repair estimate on some work to be done on the house and to check with someone about getting rid of the bats which were inhabiting the place. He also planned to do some yard work and to get the place cleaned up a little. It started to rain the first day that he was there, and he began closing some of the windows. He was upstairs, in the dark hallway, and heard a voice call his name. He looked around, but there was no one there. Carl closed the window and went downstairs. He walked into the front room and heard what sounded like two pistol shots. He ran into the kitchen and found the room filled with smoke and the acrid smell of gunpowder. Apparently, someone had fired a gun inside of the house. Carl searched the place, finding the doors locked and undisturbed. There appeared to be no one inside, and he returned to the kitchen. He began looking around the room and discovered two bullet holes in the door leading down to the basement. He examined them closely and realized that they were not new holes at all, but old bullet holes that had worn smooth around the edges. They were apparently holes left behind from Robert Lamont's encounter with a ghost in the kitchen. Perhaps events from the past were replaying themselves at Summerwind. No matter what the explanation, it was enough for Carl and he left the house that afternoon. The plans to turn the house into a restaurant did not go smoothly. Workmen refused to stay on the job, complaining of tools disappearing and feelings as if they were being watched. Marie Bober agreed with their complaints. She was always uneasy in the house and frequently told people that she felt as if she was followed from place to place whenever she was inside. Most disturbing to Bober, however, was the apparent shrinkage and expansion of the house. Bober would measure rooms one day and then find that they were a different size the next day. Usually, his measurements were larger than those given in the blueprints of the house, sometimes greatly larger. At one point, Bober estimated that he could seat 150 people in his restaurant, but after laying out his plans on the blueprints of Summerwind, he realized he could only seat half that many. 
photographs that were taken of the house using the same camera and taken only seconds apart also displayed the variations of space. The living room was said to show the greatest enlargement. Bober compared his photos of the living room with those that Ginger had taken when she and Arnold moved in. Ginger's photos showed curtains on the windows that she took with her when she moved out. The curtains were physically absent in the room that Bober photographed, but somehow they appeared in his photos. Like the incident involving Carl and the pistol shots, could Summerwind be a place where time inexplicably repeats itself? Perhaps the place wasn't haunted at all, but instead was a mysterious site where time was distorted in ways that we cannot understand. Perhaps the shadows and figures that were seen could have been people or images from the past, or even the future, and perhaps the sound of someone calling Carl's name would happen in reality several months later. We will never know for sure now, but the idea is something worth considering. Eventually, the project was abandoned, and Bober would never see the dream of his restaurant and inn. Strangely, though, despite his claims that he was an earthly companion of the ghostly Jonathan Carver, the Bobers never spent the night inside of the house. They chose instead to sleep in an RV that they had parked on the grounds. Also strange was the fact that Carver, if the ghost existed, chose to manifest himself in such malevolent ways, especially if he was looking for help in finding his deed. Bober's explanation for this was that Carver resented anyone living in the house or trying to renovate the place, at least until the deed was found. Bober spent many days searching the basement for where the deed might be hidden, chipping the foundation and peering into dark holes and crevices. To this day, the mysterious deed has never been found. In the years that followed Bober's abandonment of Summerwind, a number of skeptics came forward to poke holes in some of Bober's claims. Many of their counterclaims, however, have been nearly as easy to discredit as some of Bober's original ones. Obviously, we're never going to know for sure if Summerwind was really haunted. The house is gone now, and we are left with only the claims, reports, and witness accounts of Bober and his family. We can examine the claims of the family and the skeptics and try to make sense of it all. In 1983, a freelance writer named Will Pooley set out to gather the facts behind the story and discredit it. His research claimed that even if Bober had found Carver's deed, it would have been worthless. He based these findings on the fact that the British government ruled against an individual's purchase of Indian land and also that the Sioux had never claimed land west of the Mississippi River. First of all, the land was not sold to Carver. It was given to him in return for assistance that he had given to the Indians, so British law would not have ruled against this. On the other subject, the Sioux Indians were not a single tribe, they were an entire nation, made up of many different tribes. It's possible and very likely that one tribe that belonged to the Sioux Nation could have lived in Wisconsin. The white settlers pushed the Indians further and further west, and as this particular tribe abandoned their lands, they could have deeded them to Carver. Pooley also argued that the deed to the property had been located in the old land office in Wausau, Wisconsin in the 1930s, 
and that it's unlikely that Carver even journeyed as far north as West Bay Lake. But would he have had to have traveled to northern Wisconsin to hold a deed to the land? And why would there not have been another deed filed for that piece of land? Someone could have claimed it many years later, not even realizing that Carver already held the title to it. He also argued that the deed could have never been placed in the foundation of the house anyway. Summerwind had been built more than 130 years after Carver died. To this, it can only be argued that many events of the supernatural world go unexplained. One man that Pooley did talk to, however, was Herb Dickman of Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin. He had helped pour the foundation for the house in 1916 and recalled that nothing had been placed in the foundation, a box containing a deed or anything else. So who really knows? Apparently, Bober was not always the most credible person either. Residents who lived close to Summerwind said that Bober spent less than two summers at the estate. After abandoning plans for the restaurant, he tried to get a permit to operate a concession stand near the house, but local ordinances prohibited this. Perhaps he was planning the idea of tours of the haunted house, an idea that would come along a little later. There was even some uncertainty as to whether or not Bober even owned Summerwind. One area resident told Pooley that Bober had tried to buy the house on a contract for deed, but the deal had fallen through. The house had been abandoned and no one laid claim to it, save for the bank, and they never realized what Bober was up to out there. This story has never been verified, however, and it cannot be proven that Bober did not own the place. So how much of the story that Bober wrote about in his book is true? Was the house really haunted, or was the story of the haunting merely a part of a scheme by Raymond Bober to draw crowds to a haunted restaurant? Those who live near the house claim that the idea that it is haunted is all come from the fact that the mansion was abandoned and from Bober's wild claims. But what else would they say? These neighbors have often made it very clear that they resent the strangers who come to the property tramping over their lawns and knocking on doors. They said that the chartered buses that once came and dumped would-be ghost hunters onto the grounds of Summerwind were also unwelcome. These are the last people to ask for an objective opinion on whether this house is actually haunted. So there remains the mystery. Was Summerwind really haunted? No one knows, and if they do, they're not saying. The house was completely abandoned in the early 1980s and fell deeper and deeper into ruin. Bats had already taken up residence years before, and the house became a virtual shell, resting there in a grove of pines. The windows were shattered and the doors hung open, inviting nature's destructive force inside. In 1986, the house was purchased by three investors who apparently thought that they could make a go of the place again but it was not to be. Forces greater than man had other ideas. Summerwind was struck by lightning during a terrible storm in June of 1988 and burned to the ground. Today, only the foundations, the stone chimneys, and perhaps the ghosts remain. Keep listening, there's more weird darkness to come. 
Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 800-830-9804 I have had some strange, inexplicable things happen to me over the years. I've been living in a lovely, quiet house for nearly three years now, except for a couple of odd occurrences. The first involves the bathroom light switch, which is a cord pull one. Not long after I moved in, I had to replace the cord because my ex had got it grubby with engine oil. I bought one with a chunky silver end on it so it was big enough for my ex to grab hold of without touching the cord with his mucky hands. The switch is right next to the glass shower screen, and after someone had pulled it, it could swing and hit the screen with a distinctive tap sound. In recent weeks, both myself and my son have heard the tap of the light switch hitting the shower screen on more than one occasion. We live here on our own, and so we both know that there was nobody in the bathroom at the time. No windows were open to cause drafts at the time either. Then, one morning last week, I got up and went to the bathroom and found the end of the light switch in pieces on the floor. I was the last one to use the bathroom the night before and I know it wasn't broken then. The tap sound hasn't happened since, which lessens the likelihood of the sound we heard before being from something else. The second odd thing that happened was that I had a couple of CDs on the dressing table at the foot of my bed. It was a Saturday morning and I had been awake for about 30 minutes and was enjoying a lie-in when I heard a tap on the CD case. I was on my own in my room and nowhere near it. I got up and gently lifted the top CD about a centimeter from the bottom one and let it drop. It sounded exactly the same. I can't explain either of these things rationally, which, as I have gotten older, I always like to do. It has left me wondering whether I have the spirit of a child following me from house to house. Although some of the things that have happened in the past have scared me, they don't appear to be negative. Or am I just reading way too much into this? The story of Agnes Whiteland begins when she peers at the balcony of her house on the first floor. A few meters in the air is a round platform with a thickness of 30 centimeters and a diameter of 3.5 meters. On this platform were 8 to 12 men standing around in a circle, 
looking forward as if they were watching something around them. This platform had two irons in circumference, one at the knees of those men and the other a little higher. These visitors were dressed in blue uniform and cap of the same color. They looked like military men. According to Agnes Whiteland's account, this platform was about 9 meters high from the ground and about 100 feet from where the witness was. The mystery of this event is that the platform apparently had no propulsion engine or produced any noise that could be perceived by simple hearing. Neither were any cables or ropes visible on which the platform that held these quiet travelers could be laid. They remained in this place for a few minutes and disappeared in the same direction from which they came. As for the uniform they wore, it seemed much more modern than the usual military uniform of the day. It could be said that their presence did not fit in the place or the time. The information received on this unusual fact has been investigated by several experts. The results did not find any valid explanation about what happened or this form of transport used by the visitors. Among all known facts seems to be an isolated fact. Everything apparently points to a visit of some gentleman who came from the future to observe and be direct witnesses of the First World War. But in this case, it may never be solved or explained on a scientific basis. For now, this story remains a memory in the minds of relatives who still live today and live with this unusual experience of that English lady named Agnes Whiteland. Tichuba arrived in Boston in 1680 to start her new life, though it was not much of one. She was a slave owned by Samuel Paris, a wealthy business owner who inherited a sugar plantation in Barbados. Tichuba's origins are unclear and relatively common for her time, and scholars believe that she may have been from the Arawak tribe of Venezuela before she was either sold or born into slavery. Indeed, without the Salem witch trials, history would have never known about Tichuba at all. Her highly imaginative and coherent testimony in court, in which she details her brush with the devil, would organize and set the tone for the witch hunts to come. She would deliver the longest testimony in the Salem witch trials, inciting a hunt and ultimately freeing herself from slavery. She was barely in her teens when she came to Massachusetts with two other slaves with Samuel Paris. Paris married in Boston and took a position as the minister of Salem Village in 1689, where he moved Tichuba and his family. Meanwhile, Tichuba and Paris's other slave, John, who was said to be Native American, allegedly married. It was Tichuba's job to take care of Paris's nine-year-old daughter Betty, to whom she became particularly close. She also took care of Paris's niece, Abigail Williams, who was 11 years old. In early 1692, several people in the village began to have fits and convulsions. Betty Paris was the first, followed by her cousin Abigail. Symptoms spread and became more pronounced. Some people complained of bites and pinches. Friends of the Paris girls, Anne Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard, complained of visions and hallucinations. Doctors could not find anything medically wrong with any of these four girls, 
so they suggested a supernatural cause. One of the girls admitted to fortune-telling, so the hunt was on for who bewitched these poor white girls. Tichiba was one of the three women who were the first to be blamed for the spread of witchcraft in Salem. After all, the slave girl spent most of her time around Betty Paris. She was accused of voodoo and of baking a witch cake to reveal the Paris girl's fatal fortunes and egg yolks. Tichiba had prayed with the Paris family, took meals with them, and served them their meals. The four girls also accused Sarah Good, a mentally ill woman who was destitute, and Sarah Osborne, an old widow who had frequent disputes with the Paris family. On March 1, 1692, Tichiba and the other two women appeared before a court. They were to answer the charges of witchcraft. The two accused white women flatly denied their charges. But Tichiba did not. The devil came to me and bid me serve him, she confessed. She had an uncanny and thorough report regarding her brush with the devil. Her account was so exhaustive in its oddity and horror that the citizens of Salem believed Tichiba. She spun a sordid and detailed account about how a tall, white-haired man in a dark coat ordered her to hurt the children. If she did not, he threatened, then she would die. She then implicated his devious animal minions, a huge black dog, a hog, a black cat, a red cat, a yellow bird, and even an unknown hairy creature who all walked on two legs. She went so far as to include her fellow suspects. As soon as she did this, the people of Salem wanted to root out the evil in Salem. They wanted more names beyond these two women. Justice John Hathorne, therefore, asked Tichiba if she had seen the Devil's Book filled with the names of those he willed to do his bidding. The Devil, Tichiba said, wouldn't let her see the book yet. No, he no let me see, but he tell me I should see them the next time. She claimed not to know who else was under the spell of witchcraft. However, there were some in Boston and some here in this town, but he would not tell me who they were. Tichiba was choosy where she gave detail, but with reason. She took no issue with describing the devil, but was hesitant and vague to name others, real suspects. In moments like this, Tichiba feigned blindness. Her withholding made her an even more valuable source of information to the terrified people of Salem. They needed her to point fingers, give explanations, and save their town. When the Salem witch hunt began, three women stood accused. The two white Sarahs and Tichiba. By the fall of 1692, up to 185 witches and wizards had been named. Several of the accused suffered torture, drowning, crushing by stones, and hanging. In all, Salem's authorities executed 19 people and imprisoned 150. But Tichiba was only imprisoned. Tichiba's confession proved too valuable. Modern scholars believe that the fits and hallucinations the Paris girls suffered from were due to contaminated rye flour rather than witchcraft. Since doctors in the late 1600s had no clue about microbial contamination, they turned to a supernatural explanation for the symptoms. As for Tichiba, 
she got out of prison and left Salem with her husband, John. They were never heard from again. Even though the real Tichaba disappeared, her legacy lives on in fictional accounts. In modern times, Tichaba appears in the 2013 WGN series called Salem, and descendants of Tichaba show up in the popular series American Horror Story Coven. Historians believe Tichaba confessed to witchcraft and implicated others as revenge against Samuel Paris for being his slave. She protected her own interests by playing on the fears of the Puritans and their religious fervor. In so doing, Tichaba was able to manipulate an entire village to set herself free. The discovery of a 10-year-old's body at an ancient Roman site in Italy suggests measures were taken to prevent the child, possibly infected with malaria, from rising from the dead and spreading disease to the living. The skeletal remains, uncovered by archaeologists from the University of Arizona and Stanford University, along with archaeologists from Italy, included a skull with a rock intentionally inserted into the mouth. Researchers believe the stone may have been placed there as part of a funeral ritual designed to contain disease and the body itself. The discovery of this unusual so-called vampire burial was made over the summer in the Italian region of Umbria, where UA archaeologist David Soren has overseen archaeological excavations since 1987. I've never seen anything like it, he said. It's extremely eerie and weird. Locally, they're calling it the Vampire of Lugnano. The discovery was made at the Cemetery of the Babies, which dates to the mid-5th century when a deadly malaria outbreak swept the area, killing many vulnerable babies and small children. The bodies of the young victims were buried at the site of an abandoned Roman villa that was originally constructed at the end of the 1st century BC. Until now, archaeologists believe the cemetery was designated specifically for infants, toddlers, and unborn fetuses. In previous excavations of more than 50 burials, a three-year-old girl was the oldest child found. The discovery of this 10-year-old, whose age was determined based on dental development but whose sex is unknown, suggests that the cemetery may have been used for older children as well, said bioarchaeologist Jordan Wilson a UA doctoral student in anthropology who analyzed the skeletal remains in Italy. There are still sections of the cemetery that we haven't excavated yet, so we don't know if we'll find other older kids," Wilson said. Excavation director David Pickle, who has a master's degree in classical archaeology from the UA and is now a doctoral student at Stanford, said the discovery has the potential to tell researchers much more about the devastating malaria epidemic that hit Umbria nearly 1,500 years ago, as well as the community's response to it. Given the age of this child and its unique deposition with the stone placed within his or her mouth, it represents at the moment an anomaly within an already abnormal cemetery," Pickle said. This just further highlights how unique the infant, or now rather child, cemetery at Lugano is. In previous excavations at the Cemetery of the Babies, Archaeologists found infant and toddler bones alongside items like raven talons, toad bones, bronze cauldrons filled with ash and the remains of puppies that appear to have been sacrificed, 
all objects commonly associated with witchcraft and magic. In addition, the body of the three-year-old girl had stones weighing down her hands and feet, a practice used by different cultures throughout history to keep the deceased in their graves. We know that the Romans were very much concerned with this and would even go to the extent of employing witchcraft to keep the evil, whatever is contaminating the body, from coming out, Soren said. The evil in the case of the babies and toddlers uncovered in Lugnano was malaria, according to Soren. DNA testing of several of the excavated bones supported his theory. Although the 10-year-old's remains have not yet undergone DNA testing, the child had an abscessed tooth, a side effect of malaria that suggests he or she may have fallen victim to the disease, according to Wilson. The child was one of the five new burials uncovered at the cemetery over this last summer. The body was found lying on its left side in a makeshift tomb created by two large roof tiles propped against a wall, a burial typical of Roman Italy. Knowing that two large roof tiles were used for this burial, I was expecting something unique to be found inside, perhaps a double inhumation not uncommon for this cemetery where a single burial contained two individuals," Pickle said. After removing the roof tiles, however, it became immediately clear to us that we were dealing with an older individual. The open position of the child's jaw, which would not have opened naturally during decomposition with the body positioned on its side, suggests that the rock was intentionally inserted in the mouth after death, Wilson said. Teeth marks on the surface of the stone provide further evidence that it was placed purposefully. The ten-year-old was the first at the cemetery to be found with a stone in its mouth. Similar burials have been documented in other locations, including in Venice, where an elderly 16th-century woman dubbed the Vampire of Venice was found with the brick in her mouth in 2009. In Northamptonshire, England, in 2017, an adult male from the 3rd or 4th century was found buried face down with his tongue removed and replaced with a stone. These types of burials are often referred to as vampire burials since they are associated with the belief that the dead could rise again. Other examples of vampire burials throughout history include bodies being staked to the ground, through the heart, or dismembered prior to internment. This is a very unusual mortuary treatment that you see in various forms in different cultures, especially in the Roman world that could indicate there was a fear that this person might come back from the dead and try to spread disease to the living," Wilson said. Archaeologists will return to Lugnano next summer to complete excavations of the cemetery and learn more about a dark time in history. It's a very human thing to have complicated feelings about the dead and wonder if that's really the end. Anytime you can look at burials, they're significant because they provide a window into ancient minds. They have a saying in bioarchaeology, the dead don't bury themselves. We can tell a lot about people's beliefs and hopes and by the way they treat the dead. There is a strange story about Gil Perez who was a 16th-century soldier and guard. The accuracy of this strange story has been questioned by some historians because it was not reported until a century after the incident took place. Gil Perez 
was an ordinary Spanish soldier, a member of the Filipino Guardia Civil, and worked as a guard at the palace of the Governor-General in Manila, Philippines. He did his duty to his government, regardless of any circumstances that arose during his guard duty. Then, something unexpected happened. On October 24, 1593, Gil Perez was doing his guard duties at the governor's palace in Manila. Chinese pirates had assassinated the governor, Gomez Perez das Marinas, the night before, but the guards still guarded the palace and awaited the appointment of a new governor. Gil Perez was tired, so he decided to lean against a wall and rest for a moment. When he opened his eyes, he did not recognize the place where he was, but he continued to do his guard duties until he was approached by someone who started asking him questions and telling him that he was somewhere that it was impossible for him to be. Gil was in Mexico City's Plaza Meyer, more than 9,000 nautical miles from Manila across the Pacific. He explained that moments before he arrived there, His Excellency the Governor of the Philippines, Gomez Perez de Smarinas, had been killed by Chinese pirates. Then, after long hours of duty in Manila, he decided to rest for a moment and a second later he opened his eyes to find himself in an unknown place. But nobody believed him. The authorities placed Perez in jail as a deserter and for the possibility that he may have been in the service of Satan. The Most Holy Tribunal of the Inquisition questioned the soldier, but all he could say in his defense was that he had traveled from Manila to Mexico in some way. After two months, a ship arrived from the Philippines bringing news of the governor's death. They said that they knew Gil Perez, though they did not know he was in Mexico City. The last time they had seen him was on October 23rd at the palace. Witnesses confirmed that Gil Perez had indeed been on duty in Manila just before arriving in Mexico. Furthermore, one of the passengers on the ship recognized Perez and swore that he had seen him in the Philippines on October 23rd. The authorities in Mexico decided to release Gil Perez and send him home, and there is no other account of Gil materializing anywhere. It is assumed that he never spontaneously teleported again. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this month I'm asking you to help raise as much money as we can for depression and suicide prevention. And you can give now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. And as of recording this episode, we are currently at $1,230 of our newly updated $2,000 goal. So please give now while you're thinking about it. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. While you're there at WeirdDarkness.com, you can also get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And congratulations to Jessica Sherman. She is this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and is receiving a Weird Darkness smartphone cover. Next week's winner gets a free Weird Darkness crew neck sweatshirt. If you want to win, just follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. The more you retweet, 
the greater your chance of winning. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on your social media, text, email, any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com, and if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Raven National left a review saying, Love it. I listened to so many podcasts on topics of paranormal, conspiracies, and more. So many I've deleted for one reason or another. This one is on my saved list for good. Great topics and you're a great storyteller. Please stay committed. Signed, Raven Nation 1. And then Jaxie Boo also left a, uh, a review on Apple Podcasts saying, Thank you. I discovered Weird Darkness roughly a month and a half ago. I can't go a day without tuning to an episode. Whether I'm at work, in the car, or just at home relaxing, this podcast has helped me through a very dark time in my life, and it honestly it makes my days go by just a little easier. I've been glued to my desk at work for 12 hours a day, and when I turn on this podcast it seems like the time flies by. I love it. I have recommended it to many of my good friends who are interested in the paranormal and cryptids. 12 out of 10 recommended. Might I also add that I'm subscribed on all platforms – Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube – it's unlike any other podcast. I feel as if I get bored listening to other stories, but Marler just keeps me coming back. The narration, the quotes at the end, all of it just keeps me excited and ready for the next. I'm not a religious person, but I do 100% find a strange comfort in the quotes at the end. I understand he reads them to help push away the darkness we've basically all opened ourselves up to, and I find that a truly amazing thing. Thank you so much for all the work you put into this, and thank you for giving me something to look forward to every day. Without this podcast, I think I'd be in a much darker space. It's also truly amazing that for the show's anniversary, he chooses to ask his viewers to donate to help with depression and suicide prevention. Wow. Just wow. Keep it up, you're amazing. Hashtag Weirdo for Life, signed Jaxie Boo. Thanks to you uh, both for the reviews and the emails. And again, if, if you've not already done so, please take a moment, drop me an email or a review. I might read yours at an upcoming podcast. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Summerwind, Wisconsin's most haunted house, was written by Troy Taylor. Followed by a Child was posted at YourGhostStories.com. Agnes and the Time Travelers was posted at Alien UFO Sightings. Tichaba and the Salem Witch Trials was written by William DeLong. The Unearthing of a Child Vampire was posted at Science Daily. And Teleportation of a Spanish Soldier was written by Ellen Lloyd. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.
IRS. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800-417-9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. Comcast Business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Offer 3120 restrictions apply not available in all areas. New business customers only limited Comcast business internet. 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three agreement required. Early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay.